There is a, um, a common adage out there that preachers only ever talk about money. I don't like that pastor. Every time I go to church there, that's all he ever talks about, money. I'm sure that for some, this is probably true. For example, most of the, most of the TV preachers that you see fall into the category of prosperity theology, into that camp, and they end up calling on their viewers to give them money in every broadcast. And about that, I would simply say this, avoid them. Shut off your TV. In 10 years of pastoral ministry here at Logansville Church, um, I have, I don't think I've ever preached a sermon or given an exhortation about giving or money in general. While it's usually, um, while this duty usually falls to one of the other elders, I have instructed uh, the ushers to come forward so that they can pass the plate. Um, I firmly believe that giving of our finances is an act of worship. It expresses our dependence upon God as well as our gratefulness, our acknowledgement that every dime that we have been given has been given by Him. I believe, this is a personal conviction, our conviction, that it should be done collectively, that it should be done in the congregation as an act of worship for all of us as opposed to, say, online giving, which has its place in some settings. I don't believe that giving of your time is an equal and valid way to tithe instead of giving your money, as some would say. The Bible presents those things as two completely separate acts, act of service and act of worship. But to be honest, I don't know who gives what here, um, unless, they, unless you tell me. Most don't. <laughs> And I like to keep it that way so that I might not esteem one giver over another. But as I said, in, in 10 years of being here, to my knowledge, I don't think I've ever spoken of these things in a sermon. But we preach through books of the Bible, and today we come to a passage where Paul addresses money. And then this is probably what is the most humbling to me is that he addresses the payment of pastors. There are a couple of old anecdotes that both kind of say the same thing, but they go like this. A minister in an address to other ministers once said that he thought ministers ought to be humble and poor like their master. I have often prayed, said he, that I might be kept humble. I never prayed that I might be poor. I can trust my brethren for that. The other anecdote is pretty much the same thing, although usually it's spoken by a church leader, an elder, or a deacon, and it says something like this, we'll keep the pastor poor and God will keep him humble. Laugh it up. <laughs> Churches have often been awkward when it comes to their pastor's salary. Uh, Charles Hodge, whom I've mentioned a few times in our study of 1 Corinthians, he once said that he was asked by a large church to take a, a $25 a week cut in pay out of dedication because the church was struggling. And that would have been a significant amount of money in the early 1800s. 
He went on to say that there were four elders at the church, and they had done very well in their professions. And so he asked them to cut his pay instead by $5 a week, and for each of them to give an extra five to bridge the gap. Well, they got mad, and he wasn't there for very long. Not long ago, an online Christian magazine asked a group of pastor's kids, or as my own kids like to say, theological offspring to share their memories of growing up in the preacher's home. One lady wrote in and told a story which took place more than 30 years earlier when she was a little girl, and yet this still bothered her as an adult. It was Easter, and this little girl got a new dress to wear to church. She seldom got anything new like this, let alone a new dress with the white lace and and gloves and shoes to match. She was so proud of her dress and danced around the building that morning. You've seen this here in some of the girls in our church. Well, the punchline is that on her way to Sunday school, a lady stopped her and said, what a lovely dress. We must be paying your daddy too much money. And before you think that stories like that are just kind of anecdotal evidence and they can't possibly be true, I've heard some of those things with my own ears. Not here, and not about me, but I have heard similar stories. Pastors often feel uncomfortable talking about money. And I think this has often been the case because churches have been so uncomfortable about money themselves. I've heard pastors tell of men in their church who would say something like that he didn't care how much the pastor got paid as long as he made less than he did. Or even that the preacher ought to make less than the lowest paid member of the congregation. Sometimes pastors have felt uncomfortable talking about money because the church hasn't been fair to them at all in compensation. And the pastor didn't really want to expose that. So this morning, I will admit to you that I feel a little uncomfortable talking about this subject. But I also need to point out that no one here has ever said anything disparaging about my salary, at least not to me. Nor do I feel that I need to cover up some injustice that's being done to me. In fact, let me be clear, this church has been fair and good in its compensation, especially in the last couple of years. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I want to read the whole chapter. Because Paul is making a very specific point, which is the priority of the gospel. And so what he does in the second half of the chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, is lay down his right to fair compensation as a way to illustrate what he has just instructed the church in chapter 8. In fact, before we read this, look at the very last verse of chapter 8. It's verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. But in making the point that that he's willing to lay down his own rights for the sake of the faith of the elect, to, to build up the body of Christ, he must first lay out the case that the right to fair compensation is an actual right of ministers, of pastors. And so since we're dividing the chapter into, into two parts, we will look at the second half next week, Lord willing. This part, the first part that we're going to look at today, is about the rights, 
And the next part is about giving up those rights. It's important for you to understand this and to remember this, that we're not going to skip the second part. I'm not that guy, and most of you know that. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Keep that in mind as we work through this. Let me read this chapter. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Is he, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we, if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I, will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, am I still entrusted with a stewardship? What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's just stop and pray here. Father, I do pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. 
I pray that you give us ears to hear. I pray, Lord, that we would hear what you are saying to us as a church body this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When we come to this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in our study of Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, it really looks like he's made an abrupt shift in his topic. He had been talking about food offered to idols, and he shifts now to the right of gospel ministers to be paid for their work. But in reality, it is much more than that because chapter, chapter 9 fits in the middle of a section uh, of his instruction to, to flee from idolatry, which is connected to his earlier charge to flee from immorality. He'll come back to address the issue of idolatry and food in chapter 10. And then he will conclude this entire section, really chapters 8, 9, and 10, and, and really the first verse of chapter 11. He'll conclude this entire section by saying this near the end of chapter 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then he will say in 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And it's important before we get into chapter 9 here, to remember that Paul acknowledges, as we saw last week, that food offered to idols in the eyes of mature Christians is just simply food. Yet for the sake of these new believers, new believers who might be in our midst, who were there in the church of Corinth, for the sake of the new believers, we must be willing to give up our rights and privileges so that we do not lay down stumbling blocks for them to get tripped up on or, or even possibly, possibly pulled right back into their, into their old idolatrous way of life. I want to be sure that we understand that Paul's message in this entire section of Scripture is this. If I can give up my right to payment for my work for the sake of the gospel, then you can give up your right to eat whatever you want for the sake of the gospel. Because the gospel is the priority. But as I said, before we can get to Paul giving up his right to payment, his right to wages, we must first see this is an actual right for ministers. This is what we see in the first 14 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And Paul begins in the first two verses speaking about his own apostleship. So Paul's apostleship, verses 1 and 2 again. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now there are other portions of Scripture, even in 2 Corinthians, where Paul sees the need to, to defend his own status as an apostle. But that's not what he's really doing here. In fact, he's already established his credentials in the, in the mind of the Corinthians in the very first line of this letter. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's how he opens the letter. Here he's establishing that as an apostle, as a minister of the gospel, he has certain rights. And so he begins by asking four rapid-fire rhetorical questions right there in verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Now it's obvious, and this is the way that rhetorical questions work, 
Um, Paul is expecting them to answer a certain way. Yes. Right? We could paraphrase verse 1 like this. As you well know, I am free. As you well know, I am an apostle. As you well know, I have seen Jesus our Lord. As you well know, you are my workmanship in the Lord. Remember, he's already reminded them that when he was with them, in, in chapter 1, verse 17, he said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, let the cross of, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And because of this, the Christians in Corinth are indebted to him for bringing them the gospel. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 tells us this. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now these, these four kind of quick rhetorical questions in the first verse, um, of those questions, it's really the first two that he addresses throughout this chapter, and it's the second one that he does first. He starts with, am I not an apostle? The very existence of the Corinthian church was authentication of Paul's labors in ministry. Acts chapter 18 tells us that he had spent a year and a half with them at the very beginning, very beginning, planting the church. But Paul is also quick to give all the credit to God. I'm sure you remember chapter 3, when he says this in verses 5 to 7, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. So I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So either, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He's clear to give credit to God. And if there were other churches around that refused to recognize Paul as an apostle, without question, the Corinthians do. They, they are the seal, they are the legal proof of his apostleship before the Lord. And as an apostle, he goes on now to offer a defense for those who would examine his motives. So let's look at Paul's defense now, beginning in verse 3. Let me just read 3 and 4. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Who will examine him? Who will examine the Apostle Paul? Well, it would be those in Corinth who would argue with his correction of them. If they would just look at Paul's life, they would see that he is living very differently from the way that they are, from the type of behavior that they're engaged in. And that's whether, whether we're talking about food offered to idols or morality or, or even with how Paul deals with offenses. Remember, they were suing each other. Paul's not suing other believers. Paul's main concern is this. The exercising of rights does not authenticate your position as a member of God's people. C consider that statement. The, the exercising of rights does not authenticate your position as a member of God's people. I, I have been around um, long enough now to have seen young men, typically, who when they come to understand freedom in Christ, 
They go over the top in exercising what they would perceive as their rights, usually with regards to alcohol or music or movies or cigars or tattoos or man buns or whatever, right? And I'm not, I'm not saying any of those things are sin. I'm saying sometimes guys go over the top, right? But Paul is saying that the exercising of rights does not authenticate your position as a member of God's people. You're a Christian by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and you don't have to prove it with that kind of outward expression. Um, Maybe that's a little bit off the subject. But in making his defense here, Paul really brings up five witnesses. Five witnesses. Witness number one is other ministers. Look again at verse four. I'm going to read four, five, and six. He says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? The the we there at the beginning of this refers to all of the other apostles. And then specifically, he's clearly talking about Paul and Barnabas who had spent time in Corinth. And again, Paul works through this whole section by asking rhetorical questions. He doesn't expect from the church at Corinth, he doesn't expect a bunch of questions back or a bunch of pushback on him. He isn't saying anything that they would disagree with. In fact, I think if they were were face to face, they would be saying, no, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, Paul, you're right. Paul's apostles had the right, by nature of their position and their work, to the daily provision of food and drink. But even beyond the meals, the food and the drink, that really refers figuratively to financial support. In other words, they should be paid so that they can provide for themselves. This is where he's going in verse 5 when he, when he brings up bring, bringing along a believing wife. If the minister has a wife, and by implication a family, then obviously that minister will require additional support. Do you see what Paul is doing here? Let me put it this way. For some jobs, this can get a little bit tricky, but for some jobs, the pay can be set based on the work accomplished. Let me give you an example so you understand where I'm going with this. It's kind of messy, but I think you'll understand what I mean. Most fast food jobs, this is just an example, most fast food jobs are not designed to raise a family on. Not everybody likes that, but that's the truth, right? There are other jobs that are similar. They're not designed to raise a family on. But Paul is saying here that he has a right as a minister of the gospel to be supported by the church in such a way that he can support his family on his salary. That's what he's saying. I may have noticed this morning and throughout this chapter so far, I've used apostles and ministers, and sometimes I'll say preachers or pastors, I've used those things kind of interchangeably. The reason for that is because Paul includes in his list here the brothers of the Lord, which are at least James and Jude, although he had a couple of others as well, and they were not technically apostles. 
But they were clearly ministers. In fact, both James and Jude wrote books of the Bible. And I have sometimes called James, I've sometimes referred to him as the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem based on how he leads. In fact, he even leads the other apostles or the apostles themselves in Acts chapter 15. The point that we're seeing here is that this, this isn't just about the apostles' rights. This is about all who would come after them in shepherding the flock of God, in keeping watch over their souls as those who will have to give an account. To put it simply, Paul is saying that those who minister the word have a right to financial support, not the bare minimum, which is what far too many people think, but enough even to provide for their own families. And to continue with this idea, Paul actually appeals to some common occupations. So this is witness number two, are these common occupations from verse 7. Look at verse 7 again. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Each of these occupations have a, a deep biblical background, but they're also universal, right? These are occupations that nearly everyone across time and across different cultures, no matter where on earth you are, nearly everyone would, would understand and be familiar with these three occupations. And, and we know, we understand that throughout history, there have been exceptions to the rules here. So, for example, even in our own lifetime, we sometimes hear of the of the financial mistreatment of our soldiers, particularly those um, infantrymen or those of lower rank. But we understand that exceptions to this, exceptions to verse 7, are morally wrong, right? Another example would be um, during the Middle Ages when the feudal lords would kind of force those to farm their land and would only give them just a little bit of what they grew and would keep for them. We understand those things to be morally wrong. Pay um, should be fair. The same is true for ministers. They should be paid in such a way that they or their wives don't need to worry or be concerned about how they're going to pay the bills or have grocery money or etc. And just to be clear... <laughs> This isn't about pastors with bad spending habits. That's a completely different issue. Paul is addressing the right of pastors and therefore the obligation of churches to provide for their ministers. So here's an objection that people often make. Well, Paul was a tent maker. Shouldn't all pastors uh, be tent makers? Shouldn't all pastors get jobs and provide for themselves? Paul's entire point in laying aside his right to a livable wage, is that it, it's his right to do so. It's not up to the congregation. If a church can't afford to pay a pastor, they need to pay that pastor. Even before any other budget item, actually. Not the building, not curriculum, not the light bill. The biblical priority that we see throughout the New Testament, throughout Scripture, and he lays out here, the biblical priority is that the church pay her pastors to provide for their families so that their wives don't have to work and that they can pay full attention to the ministry of the word. 
And I want you to understand, I, I, I hope, can you see why this is an awkward passage to preach? I want you to understand that I'm not being passive aggressive here. I think, I, I think you understand that. I'm not trying to use the pulpit inappropriately. Logansville Church has come a long way in this regard, and so for that, I am grateful. Please understand that. That's not the point. Well, having heard from the witnesses around them, the witnesses around us, other ministers, a few common occupations, Paul now turns to the Mosaic Law. So witness number three is the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses. Verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? What Paul has so far asserted as kind of common sense, he also backs up with Scripture, Old Testament Scripture in this case. And this is a direct quote of Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Now the question that we have to ask here is this, and Paul asks this for us. Is that law which says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Deuteronomy 25, 4, it's right there in verse um, 9. Is that law written for the sake of the oxen? Paul, obviously, he says as much, doesn't seem to think so. I think we need to apply this principle, uh, principle to this that, that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, which says this, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Here's the principle. Are not you, are you not of more value than they? We won't take the time this morning to learn there, but even a, even a quick look at the rest of that section of the law, Deuteronomy 24, 25, shows us that God's people, the people of God, are of infinitely more value than the sparrows or the oxen, and that he's supremely concerned that his people be taken care of and take care of one another. Paul's point in bringing up this, uh, this scripture is that scripture is relevant, the word of God is relevant to the question at hand, and it supports the truth that laborers work in hope of sharing the harvest, which leads to the logical conclusion that those who sow in spiritual things have the expectation of reaping material benefit. That's what he says in verse 11, look at that again. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Now, I want to acknowledge um, that there are so many preachers out there who use scriptures like this to manipulate churches for their own benefit. Paul is not talking about pastors getting rich. He's talking about churches being fair with their pastors. That's what he's talking about. And, and I should add anecdotally that for every prosperity preacher who does manipulate for their own benefit, 
There are many more who are completely taken advantage of by churches who are stingy with the Lord's money and disregard these passages of Scripture. But as I said, Logansville is not one of those churches. Praise the Lord. And what we all need to understand about this argument is that the material benefits are of far less importance than the spiritual benefits. Infinitely less. Look again at the beginning of verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. This is, this is personal for Paul. The church understood that, that the others there, maybe it's, maybe it's referring to the other apostles, although we don't have any evidence that any of the others had been there. Maybe it's the other apostles, but probably this is the Corinthians' own pastors. Yet Paul and Barnabas should have been first in line to receive their financial support from them because they were the ones who brought the gospel to them. Yet clearly from the rest of verse 12 and even the rest of the chapter, Paul sets aside this right. But I want, to, I want you to hold that thought because we're going to circle back to it here and then we will get into it more next week. Because Paul has two more quick witnesses to bring to the stand here. Witness number four are the temple workers in verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Now in the city of Corinth, and we have talked about this even in chapter 8, so last week, um, we could easily understand this, uh, this principle to, to probably be true in the pagan temples. It's likely that these pagan priests that were offering these sacrifices to their false gods were eating some of the food and then they were selling it in the markets and they were making money on it. But Paul probably, most likely, is really talking about God's temple and the priests that were in Jerusalem. And as the people brought sacrifices, the priests were able to eat some of them. In fact, the Old Testament law makes this point in, in Leviticus chapter 6. Verse 14 says this, This is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. And it shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting, they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it, as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. But it's not just the bread that they can eat. Leviticus chapter 10 tells us that they were able to eat of some of the meat offerings as well, some of the burnt offerings, the animals that were sacrificed and cooked there. Well, at this point in Paul's defense, um, in his right to payment for his work for the Lord in the, in the Lord's word, he's laid out the witnesses of other ministers 
including the apostles. He named Cephas, I kind of skipped over this part, but he named Cephas or Peter specifically because we know that, we know that Peter was married since Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Mark 1 tells us about this. He's brought up witnesses of these common occupations, the soldier, the vine dresser, the shepherd. Everyone knew that they ought to be paid for their work, that they had a right to eat of the crops that they produced or the milk that they produced. He's appealed to the Old Testament law as setting a standard for fairly paying those who labor. And then specifically to the temple workers who keep watch over their souls and their work in God's temple. And so to drive home his point, he appeals also to the Lord's command. Look at verse 14. This is witness number five, the Lord's command. Verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. See, up until this point, Paul has drawn parallels and inferences from the law, from the Old Testament. But now he says that this is about obedience to Christ. Christ commands this. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 12 to the lost sheep of Israel and he gives them this command. He says this to the 12, Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. What Jesus is telling the twelve is that it is incumbent upon the people to whom you are preaching to provide for you. In fact, it's actually kind of a Almost a double command. The disciples are called to bring nothing for themselves, and the churches, or those, they're not churches yet, but those who are, uh, will hear the disciples preaching, the people there are called to provide for them. The laborer deserves his food. Later, when Paul is instructing Timothy on how a church should operate, Paul will quote both the law and Jesus on this very point. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, he says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, as Deuteronomy, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. That was Jesus. And so in these verses, Paul has made the case that it is the church's responsibility to provide for the minister and his family, and that it is his right as a preacher as an, and an apostle. And yet, we must keep in mind Paul's motivation. Paul's motivation. Look again up at the beginning, the middle really of uh, chapter, uh, verse 12, sorry. Kind of as a new paragraph and it says this. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, we will get into this more next week as we looked at the rest of this chapter, but Paul is willing to forego his earned and deserved pay rather than see weak, immature people stumble over this. And we need to remember that that he's not foregoing his pay because the mature Christians are cheap. 
He's doing this so as to not put an obstacle in the way of the gospel taking root there in the church of Corinth specifically. And so so let me just give you two passages that tell us exactly what Paul's motivation is. And, And before I read these passages, let me... The career um, of pastor is a, from a career standpoint, it's a pretty terrible career. From a career standpoint, from an earnings standpoint, from a, from a, a 401k standpoint, retire, all of that kind of stuff. But from, a, from the Lord's standpoint, from a heavenly or an eternal perspective, I can't imagine doing anything else. I, I, I can't imagine doing anything else. And I praise God every day that I get to do this. Here's his motivation, and this ought to be the motivation of every preacher. Two passages. The first one is from this book, 1 Corinthians 1, 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But we preach Christ crucified. And the second is Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We preach Christ. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This should be our motivation. It's not about a paycheck. It's not about eating and drinking. It's about preaching Christ that that we may be mature in him. Pray with me. Father, we, I come to you this morning and I'm grateful. I'm grateful for this church I'm grateful for this body of believers that you have assembled here. I rejoice um, that it's not a burden to preach and to shepherd this flock. We rejoice that we get to that we get to do this together. That though there are hard decisions and though there are difficult days, though we um, at times walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We get to do this together because you have assembled us. You have called us together and called us by your name, and we rejoice in that. You have called us into communion through your Son. And so even as we come to the table, Lord, we don't, we, we don't presume to come based on our own righteousness, but on your mercy. We're not worthy to gather up the crumbs from your table, Lord, but you are merciful and gracious. So even as we come today, Lord, we pray that you would grant to us a celebration in the breaking of bread, in the drinking of the cup, a celebration of the death of Jesus Christ, knowing that he rose from the dead victorious, knowing that when he died, he died for our sin that we might be raised with him to walk in a newness of life. And so, Father, we come today rejoicing. Father, we thank you for all that you have done. I thank you for continuing to bless our church, even financially. 
for continuing to bless our church with children, with men who love you, moms who love you, with grandparents who love you. Father, we rejoice that we are able to assemble in your name. We rejoice because of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.